You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Robert Rapino is the author of Mort, Cul-de-Sac, Dark, and Malefactor. These are the four books in the War Without a Name series. He has two additional books, Spark and the League of Ursus, and Spark and the Grand Salute. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thanks so much for having me again. I'm so glad to be back. This is such a wonderful series, and I think you really bring it home with this final book because we're completely invested in the characters and the action and following all of them to to their fates. But it's such an interesting setup. I, I'd like you to just give us like kind of a pricey of you know what what happens. It, Mort has such a beginning because I think one of the things I like about this book is. They're apocalyptic in a sense, but not dystopian. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I've had some people describe them as dystopian, and I think they have, there's some dystopian elements, but I, I do like to think of them as the characters are, are really trying their best. Mm-hmm. It's just not exactly working out, but it's not like a dystopia where it's like, you know, you find out like Soylent Green is people or something. <laughs> it's not that level of dystopian. Uh, but to, yes, to give a quick uh, background, so this this series is about a war between humans and animals. Um, the war is triggered by a colony of hyper-intelligent ants that are led by a very vengeful queen. She uses some weird technology to, to uplift the animals so that they can now speak, they can now think like humans, they walk upright like humans, and they wage war against her. In the aftermath of this war, there's a, there's a talking cat named Mort, and he goes on a quest to find his uh, long-lost... Uh, dog lover named Sheba. So that's book one. Book two, he has found her, but they end up going in their separate ways. Um, he wants her to just be happy that the war is over and they can just live a peaceful life, but she wants to go off and go on, on her own adventure. Uh, and that that's what brings us to this last book in the series, Malefactor, where uh, the consequences of their decisions are coming back to haunt them in crazy ways. And And there's also a giant army of wolves that's about to destroy everything that the the humans and the animals have tried to build in the aftermath of this war while they're trying to bring peace. I hope that's a quick enough. <laughs> no, that, that is a good job. And I think that for me, although this book begins in a sense with the apocalypse, the fall of the human race from being the dominant species on earth, in a sense, the entire series is not about um, a dystopia, but they're all the characters are stumbling to build some kind of utopia in a sense where all the critters on the earth are now equal and we have to figure out a way to live together or die together. And I think that that's an interesting premise. So talk about um, when you started these books, did you know exactly where they were going to go or did you have to follow the, did you have to follow the problems you created for yourself as you wrote them? I think the latter is is the case. I think following the problems I created, um, I think, is a better description of how this went along. Um, I, my idea for the first book really was just going to end with the main characters being reunited. And I thought that was a good enough ending, but it just raised so many questions. And before I was even done writing the first book, I already was like, OK, well, 
if this if this this and this happened in book one, then book two obviously has to involve these other things. And then before you know it, you've now gone into this rabbit hole. And uh, that is really where this came from. I mean, it it's it's its own universe, so it can be expanded. But but um, yeah, I can't claim that I had a, a coherent plan at the beginning. Um, I will say when my when my editor acquired this book and our first meeting, he wanted to talk a little bit about book one. And I was like, OK, let me tell you about the sequel. And he was like, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. We, I, we always sign one book here, chief. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I just saw a cartoon in the paper today that saw had an editor sitting across from a writer and the editor was saying, well, I know you intended this to be a dystopian vision of a nightmarish future, but we're going to be selling it as a fond remembrance of what lost yet lost last year. Right. <laughs> and, and I think there's a bit of that happening with this book in that it while it does posit the fall of humanity, it's not all bad. It's not because humans were so terrible, but because everything else became equal to us. And I think that one thing I know I don't know about you, but I've been reading a lot of science lately that talks about how intelligent the animals are right now. And for example, uh, Jane Ackerman has written a couple of fantastic books about birds describing how amazingly intelligent birds are. I never thought birds, up until I read her books, were much more intelligent than flies. <laughs> but. Uh, I think we're learning now that the animals that surround us have a, a good deal of innate intelligence that we're unable to understand simply because we're physiologically so different. Yeah, I mean, I would say innate intelligence and and emotions and a sense of consciousness and a sense of others around them. I mean, the the, the empathy tests that people have come up with for animals are shocking. I think... If, if you've never seen them, I mean, the one that I would recommend and I would say go on YouTube and I think it's Franz DeWall who has uh, tested um, – he's done some tests on capuchin mon monkeys. There's an amazing test he does where he puts them each in a cage next to each other and uh, he gives one – they have to perform a simple task. I think it just involves giving a rock back to the scientist. But one of them is rewarded with a pear, which they don't really like but they'll eat, and the other is rewarded with a grape. And uh, when one monkey sees the other monkey getting a grape and he's only getting a pear, he gets very upset and jealous. So, like, you can see a sense of, like, fairness in them. You see a sense of, like, you know, just uh, an awareness of others and, like, what they're owed and, and, like, how to take care of them, how to take care of yourself. I mean, it's – I think our minds are going to be blown in the coming years. The people who are doing research on this are, are – I think are going to increasingly shock us at – what level of, of not just intelligence, but consciousness and empathy that animals have. I, I agree. I think that, that one of the huge revolutions in humans' vision of, of the world is, is coming when we understand how much animals feel, think, and understand us. And, and probably just have, for the most part, just as regarded us as irritating annoyances up until the point when we, you know, destroy the planet. But that, that said, you know, I, I think that your book gets, you know, it fits into a certain kind of genre of, you know, what, talking animals. But I, I think that one of the things that you do is that this book is not a satire. It's not like Animal Farm where they're just talking. I think that I was thinking of books that are 
closest to this. Or, and the only thing I could really come up with is a movie that I saw many, many years ago by Saul Bass, the guy who is most famous for doing the Pink Panther animations. And uh, it was a movie that he directed called Phase 4. Um, <laughs> I see you smiling because uh, it, it's about in which sunspots uh, make give give ants enough intelligence to begin eliminating the natural uh, predators, and we are a natural predator for ants, and it doesn't necessarily turn out well for humans. And I think that 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 kind of vision of leveling the playing field between animals and humans is where you're working, and and that's really an effective thing, and I think. Moreover, that the uh, your basic uh, bit of science fiction hand waving at the beginning, which is ants, there's there are hyper intelligent ants, and they decide to elevate everybody else in the world, all the other animals in the world. That 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 actually really works in terms of of you know setting the reality for the novels. Yeah, and I I think what the book is challenging people to do is just to acknowledge that we are animals. Um, but, you know, that we are, which is something that people are not are not willing to do sometimes. And, uh -huh. and even in my own, I mean, just the way we use the language. I mean, one of the things that I kept running into was who gets, who in the book gets to use the word animal? Um, you know, this is a big issue because like there were humans who used it as a way to dismiss the non-humans. Okay. Um, there are animals who use it as a way of, of, um, you know, talking about how they're better than the humans. There are also animals that use it in a derogatory term. Um, there's a character named Cul-de-Sac who's a real bitter, bitter guy. He's a bobcat, but he is um, very happy to use the word animal to mean like savage or primitive or something like that. But I think in his mind, it's like, yeah, well, I can use the word like this. And if I ever hear a human talking like this, I'll kill him. You know, it's, it's that kind of uh, that kind of mentality. But yeah, yeah, I guess leveling the playing field. I don't know. I like to think that would raise some awareness about, you know, the fact that we're all stuck on this rock together and, and treating other other things, other living things as if they're just here for our amusement or our uh, our consumption or whatever is is not sustainable. I'm not saying we can stop immediately because obviously that would, I don't know what that would look like if we stopped immediately. But um, we definitely have to reconsider some things. And yes, by the way, Phase Four was one of those movies that they used to show on the local channels in Philadelphia, but they kind of stopped. I think because parents were complaining that their kids were traumatized. So, uh, but it is a great one. It is. I highly recommend it as well. Now, um, this book begins, you know, right where the other one left off. You know, uh, a cliffhanger to to a certain extent with uh, Dark on and leaving Mort behind. And so talk about, I think one thing is, I, again, I really like the character building in this. And so how carefully did you work out the character arcs in this novel? Or did this novel just flow from your pen while you sat there and wrote? Um, I, I definitely planned this one out pretty well, even though, you know, at the beginning of the series, I didn't really know what a book three or four would look like. But when I started this one and when we were talking to Soho about it, I did plan it out very well. And I think the the anchor of the story and the thing that helped me plan things was just this dynamic between Mort, who is traumatized and who is looking for some kind of peace, but he can't really find it because he's just still living in the war. And then the character of 
Dark, who is younger, who didn't experience the war, but still wants some adventure, you know, and Mort, of course, the tension there is Mort is like, you don't know what you're getting into. And she's like, don't, you're not the boss of me. So that tension is always going to be like, there's, it's a loving relationship, mm -hmm. but it's the kind of relationships that are always there for mentors and mentees, you know, like, I feel like you're not doing it right if your mentee just loves you all the time and agrees with everything you say. I feel like, you know, if, if you raise someone or you, you, you know, you oversee their, their development, at some point they should rebel against you in some ways. And I think that's, that ends up being the thing that helps direct the arc of these characters. I also came to the conclusion um, that some characters, I don't want to give away too much, but there are some characters who simply cannot be redeemed. Um, even though we root for them in some ways, um, they, they've just done too many terrible things and they're too damaged. And like, maybe the only way for them to actually achieve some kind of arc is by either not to give too much away, but either sacrificing themselves or maybe going back to that more innocent time back when, before they changed and when they were just animals who were just cuddling with their friends. Um, you know, so that ends up being the fate of some of the characters and, I don't know. Maybe you figured that out already from what I just said, listener, but uh, whatever. That's uh, yeah. That's one of the conclusions I came to is that not everyone is going to have an arc that just leads to like, you know, the end. Like in some cases, it's it's um, a reckoning, really. I, I think that that's one of the things the way you you treat your characters as if a you're an adult who's experienced a fair amount of life and they're all adults as well who have experienced a fair amount of life and uh there's some fabulous uh friendships in here the friendship between uh gaunt and, and nakaya is just really wonderful it's it's truly pleasing to read so so talk about uh, creating that kind of tension yeah so real quick uh gaunt is a bat um, who speaks mainly in a language I call Chiropterin, which is the, the squeaking language of bats. Uh, Nakaya is the matriarch of a colony of beavers, and she's committed a terrible war crime against the bats. Uh, and so the bats and the beavers are very angry at each other. But through a bizarre set of circumstances, she ends up breaking out of this prison, and she has to carry an injured gaunt across the countryside. And that's basically, like, in some ways, her penance. Um, so yeah, how how I built that? I mean, it. I didn't expect Nakaya to be a huge character, but I think like I ended up enjoying writing her so much in the second book, because she's so flawed, but like so single-minded. I mean, her thing is protecting this community that she has created. Um, in a lot of ways, she's like uh, let's reference more uh, old science fiction movies. She's a lot like Tina Turner's character in um, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Uh, <laughs> who has created this town called Barter Town. And like, and she says, she, I mean, the script makes it very clear. She says, I'll do anything to protect it. Mm -hmm. So this is, there's somewhat of a nobility there, even though she also does a lot of terrible things to protect it. Um, so I think I, I was thinking of that when I wrote Nakaya, like, you know, she's realizing that this single mindedness has destroyed so many people around her, including, uh, as we discover some people that she loved and, um, you know, her willingness to, like at first she's helping Gaunt out of selfishness, but eventually there's kind of a mutual respect and even a love there. Um, yeah, that 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 meant a lot to me. And I have to say as well, I was thinking of making that its own separate novella, but I just decided as like it has to go into this novel. It's just too, it, it's too connected with the themes of of redemption or failed redemption, 
um, you know, and people uh, reflecting on the decisions they've made and, and how they've caught up with them. So she was kind of the perfect character to illustrate that because of all the things she's done, good and bad. Now, you introduce, uh, I think, a new character at the beginning of this Mercy, a, a wolf. And and the, she and the wolves in this play are a big part in this novel. I think you, she's a really fascinating character because she, she does have these flaws. And I think you do a fantastic job of creating like a very multi- faceted character who has lots of different pulls on her the pulls of being a leader the pull of being a mother and i think that those the way you do that i mean it rival it it's as affecting if as if the whole thing had been set in a really like in you know normal human society but it's not and i think that kind of weird offset between the other fantasticness of the world you've created and the familiarity of the emotions that still operate in that world to ours is it creates a really interesting tension in the, in the entire novel and i think that you do a good job of playing that to uh, to keep the reader entertained engrossed and most importantly emotionally invested in the characters yeah, well, thanks for saying that. I, you know, I always worry about the villain because they're always the new character, and um, I feel like in the last book the challenge was to make the villains really weird. Um, but this time, that you know, the character's a little more something we can relate to. In the previous book, they were like these fish monsters, but this time it's a, a wolf, which is a little more familiar to us. Um, and yeah, I, I think that. Well, the challenge with her was she ends up her relationship with this human named Augur is in some ways kind of a funhouse mirror of Mort and Dark's relationship. Yes. Uh, you know, they, there's a strange platonic love between them that the outsiders, people around them don't really understand, but they kind of accept. Um, there's, there's a somewhat of a codependency. There's, um, there's, there's somewhat of a transactional nature to it, but it eventually becomes more of like a, a, a bond that they can't really separate anymore. Um, and yeah, I guess just just giving her, giving her the motivation, the competing motivation of like protecting her people in general, protecting her sister in particular. Her sister's had a real bad string of bad luck that has, has put her in a bad situation, um, and also like, you know, finding some way to to somehow make it so that there will be peace forever. I mean, she does have a plan to make peace. Um, it's a little different from the humans' plan, but. Um, it's, it's there for the taking and for the first time in her life, cause she's been treated like property her whole life for the first time in her life, she has a chance to go for it. And I mean, it, hopefully I've set up a situation where it just makes sense for her to say, you know what, I'm going to drop everything and, and, and go for it. I think that's like a really important thing for your villain, like in, in the character and maybe it's wrong to even call her a villain. She's just another character. But, but I think what sometimes happens is the antagonist, um, they just want to do evil just because they're evil. But hopefully I've set this up where if you if you look at this book as as Mercy, as the as the protagonist, like her journey makes some sense too. like her decisions make some sense. You know, it says not just evil, you know, oh, I think that it, it it's a super great example of the idea that the best villains in, in fiction are those who think they're doing something good 
and feel good about what they're doing and are, you know, maybe they get they at some level understand that maybe it's not going to work out for them or anybody else near them. But still, they see them do not see themselves as a villain. And I and I think that is masterfully done here. And because right. we have sympathy for her, her, even you know when when she's doing something that's somewhat despicable. Yeah, and I, I think I think not just establishing motivations, but for me, it's important to show how desperate your villain can be. Um, exactly. Yeah, putting them because very often I think what happens in a, especially a lot of movies, it's where like the villain seems completely invincible until the very end when they have that stunned look on their face when they realize that the hero has gotten the best of them. But showing early on just how desperate they are, I think can play a big role. So I definitely, the opening chapter of this really like grinds her into the dirt where when when she decides finally to make an alliance with the humans, which is just unthinkable for a wolf. Um, but in some ways it, it, it makes sense and people understand. It's almost like a... Uh, only Nixon can go to China kind of thing for her to join with the humans. It's like her credibility as a, as a, a wolf is so strong that if she decides to go with the humans, these humans must be good humans. So, and you know, one thing you talked about was, uh, referring, describing humans as animals. And I think that this book does a fantastic job of showing humans behaving in a way that we as humans can understand, but we can, you know, we're able to revision envision ourselves as and understand that what we consider elevated human behavior is really just a a, a different twist on on animal behavior. That's true, and I think the the opportunities in the book to deal with that mainly came from the there there are scenes on board a ship, and then there's a, a ship at sea, and then there are scenes on board uh, an airship where the majority of the crew of both of those vessels is human. And you get to see just the little microaggressions that they have against the animals, where they even think that they're being helpful. You know, like they ask Dark about like how dogs have sex, you know, like that kind of like kind of like juvenile question to ask. Um, and then on board the, the airship, I mean, what ends up happening is a power struggle because one of the humans has very good reasons not to trust uh, the captain, who's a dog uh, or a husky. And um you know, you get to see how the paranoia plays out and like these people who have committed themselves to a cause and who have taken an oath and who are mature adults who can make rational decisions. You see suddenly they're doing all the things that they claim that they've risen above by status of their species. So, yeah. and, and you talk too, uh, you know, about creating villains. And one of the things that interested me a lot was that the, uh, you do a fantastic job of turning an animal we think of as meek and kind of beautiful and, 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 you know, always in danger, which is deer into some, (laughs) they they are some gnarly villains. (laughs) And and there's a, there's a scene when, when deer reveal themselves to have sharpened their own teeth that, that I think is, is shocking and good in in a horror fashion. Yeah, I don't. I, I ended up having multiple scenes where the deer are just so evil, and I don't even know. Like, I have nothing against them. Uh, some of my best friends are deer. I I don't know. I don't know how it ended up really working out that way. But it, 
in, in the scene you're talking about where the, the deer reveal themselves to be meat eaters, like that's part of the first chapter. And yeah, it is, it is meant to just show um, just how much trouble uh, Mercy and her pack of wolves are in because they, they kind of assume that the, they own these animals as their food, but then the, the deer end up turning the tables on them in a truly gruesome way. Um, yeah. And then later, I guess dark has a run in with them as well. And I kind of liked the idea that the deer were one of several species that had simply removed themselves from all of this, uh, all these politics, you know, they don't want to be joining with the human city. Um, but they, and, and they'll just take their chances in the wild, uh, dealing with wolves. And even if that means that some of them are going to get picked off by the wolves, uh, they're willing to live with that. So these are just animals that have simply not accepted uh, the new, the way things are done now. And they just want to stay as deer, you know, grazing and running around. And, you know, it, it, that was, yeah, there are several species that take that route. And it just, for some reason, it felt, I mean, up until this book, most of the species that did that were all predators, but it felt natural that at least one species of herbivore would would uh, take that route. It just just shows the diversity of experience among these animals, I hope. I think one of the things that I found really entertaining in the book is that you do a good job of making it so that no matter what character or perception we go to, we go from situation to situation, character to character, we're always happy to be with those characters because they're always doing something entertaining or we like them or we want to see where they've been. So talk about balancing the emotional content like there are some great scenes about that have to do with motherhood with the you know action sequences trying to figure out you know stop the this invasion of the wolves and the, and you know the allies the return of the uh of the the queen so uh, i think that you know going back and forth between those two somewhat different types of writing you do a, you do a great job of seamlessly doing that well, thank you for saying that. I, I, um, the one big challenge I had for this with regard to the pacing was I tried to make it so that every single chapter reads as his own little short story. So hopefully every little chapter is going to have a combination of the stuff you're talking about where there might be a quieter scene where the character is reflecting on things, but there, then there might also be a violent scene that's driven by action and violence and so on. Um, so I think just having that kind of structure helped with the with the pacing a lot, um, it, it avoided the kind of chapter that's just there to get a character from point A to point B, or a, char- or a chapter that's just there to convey some exposition that we already, that, that we could have gotten somewhere else, you know. Um, so that was one way I helped set that up. I guess the other way is that I try to make sure that the action scenes all have real consequences and they force the characters to change or to make some difficult decision. Uh, I don't think I have too many superfluous action scenes. I like, I mean, I, one of the things that I like the most about this book, I think you do a good job with motherhood. And so talk about, um, do you, I, I, how did you come up with some of the, the insights that you have? There are some really touching and affecting scenes involving motherhood, mostly with with the wolves and, and with uh, dark. Yeah, I so I'm I'm not a parent myself, so I am cheating a little bit. Um, I feel like I've just read a lot in this area, and and uh, I definitely observe a lot. I'm at the age where almost all of my friends are having kids, uh, so I've gotten to meet 
quite a few people and and some of them quite a few new people i should say and some of them um it, it's so strange they're now at the age where you can have full conversations with them so i i like to think i'm learning and observing there um but i also as far as making this motherhood like authentic i i tried my best to just balance like the very primal um need of a parent to protect their child tried to balance that with with the need to also have characters that are are not merely parents they're not merely uh mothers or fathers or whatever i i i thought that that would be doing a disservice to a character like dark or to mercy um both of whom have so many other things going on in their lives so to just define them solely as just mothers who are committed to their children and that's their thing like i thought that that would not be the right way to go with these um but you know what what ends up happening in this book is that both um mercy and dark are dealing with the loss of children and they're dealing with um you know what they think is maybe the last chance to actually raise a child um and so having those characters kind of play off one another um how the different characters are using their own personal experience to to move forward i think that's what helped really just build this it kind of compelled me to add more details just like tiny tiny details about like the way dogs groom their children the way you know um the way they they comfort them when they're sad you know that kind of thing um so i think i think balancing those two characters and what they're going through at the same time i think really helped add those those really important details that are easy to leave out sometimes i'd like you to talk about um the I guess maybe your influences or your thoughts on what exactly informs this book because in some ways it, it has the feel of a, a fantasy novel, or a Lord of the Rings, in terms of just being um, a you know a grand adventure of, of these characters. Although it's thankfully not small guy from a small town, etc., etc. Et there's so many. In, imitators of lord of the rings but it has some of that feel but it also has some of the feel of you know the the star wars or dune is is i think probably a better choice um in terms of the novels so which were you informed by both genres fantasy and science fiction in terms of the epic content of this i guess uh definitely both um and you know i admit a lot of my influence probably is more cinematic than literary. I think just, you know, I was part of that generation that just grew up watching star Wars and, and, uh, so I, I, that did, that did play a huge role in all of this. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess this, the fact that because this involves such a big epic war, um, you then have to make a decision like, well, how much are you going to pull back from that and focus on particular characters? And I think picking the characters out of a giant war, I think, is what ends up defining uh, a lot of these stories. I think I, I would argue that a mistake some people make, maybe not a mistake, but just something I wouldn't I wouldn't do, which is they end up focusing almost exclusively just on the people who are leading the war and the people who are, let's say, the top brass in the war. Whereas I think something that I, I would argue that uh, A Song of Ice and Fire did well and some other books did well is um, picking out some of the people who are just, they're not really soldiers, but they've been, they've been roped into it anyway. 
and giving them a real adventure, not just watching the war happen or something like that. Um, I think seeing seeing different uh, works do that, I think, helped a lot because I think if it weren't for those, I think it would have just been a book about military tactics that just happened to involve wolves and cats and dogs. Well, I think, too, what you do really well is to make this a book about the characters' lives playing out with the war's back, a background as opposed to a book about war where characters come and go as needed by the machinery of war itself, which is uh, somewhat inhuman and incalculable and to a certain extent less interesting than the people who ha- are put brought about it. And it's interesting too because the animal species all have different feelings and inclinations about war. You talked about the deer receding. So talk about um, the way you characterize, you know, the different species and their relationship to the war against the humans. Yeah, I think most of the species, um, or I guess I would say all the species in this book, a lot of their decisions are animated by how much they may have dealt with humans and how they dealt with humans in the world before everything changed. So you have, I mean, that essentially separates the animals into several categories. You have the wild animals that tend to be pretty uh, hostile. You have animals that were kept as pets, some of whom may resent that, some of whom may have more sympathy for the humans as a result of it. It can kind of go either way. You have animals that were kept as livestock who um, obviously have a lot of reason to resent the humans, but who um, maybe are not in the best position to really fight back. Uh, so that ends up animating a lot of the characters' decisions. But of course, the challenge from there is to is to make sure you're not just essentializing all the animals based on species, because that's not interesting and it's just not it's kind of an irresponsible way of going ahead with the story. So I tried to show some diversity of thought among different uh, groups. You know, there are, as we see, the big tension in wolf country is that some of the wolves have accepted that they can't just live as wolves anymore because it's not sustainable. They can't just go around slaughtering deer whenever they're hungry. Uh, some of them have even taken up farming. And uh, Mercy's attitude is that um, that kind of concession to the humans is what doomed her people in the first place. So they are determined to live according to the old ways, uh, even to the point where they want to uh, run on all all four feet instead of walking on two feet like a lot of the other wolves. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, it, it ended up being where the animals really think of themselves as like new, unique creatures, but in some ways they're trapped in the experiences that they had before the war and uh, the experiences they had with humans in particular. You know, um, it, it strikes me that the reading, this book is a really good example of, I think, great writing in terms of creating a sustained suspension of disbelief. Once you start this book and you you start reading it, I mean, even uh, before you start it, you might think, well, this is a book about talking wolves and it just, you know, might seem kind of nonsensical, but once you're immersed into, into the, the prose framework that you create just with the words, nothing else uh it it all just kind of hangs together perfectly in the reader's mind and, and that's a very difficult effect to create 
how do you make sure that when people are in your world, I mean, this is an excellent, in a sense, summer book because it'll just absolutely, you know, you leave the world behind you and you lose yourself in this world. And I think that that required a certain kind of consistency in the prose and also a consistency in the approach. Could you repeat that last part, a consistency in, in a, change? or a Consistency in prose and consistency in the approach of the, uh, the way you approach the, the characters in terms of revealing things right. about them. Yeah, I think there are a few things going on to, to help with that. I mean, first, um, I focus, I, I really try to focus on like the sensory experience that the animals are having, you know, because animals experience the world differently than we do. So just focusing on the things, the, the smells and the sounds that would either scare them or that would um, bring out some kind of emotion or would, um, uh, you know, make them remember a certain time or something like that. I thought that helped to kind of ground things and to really signal to the reader that this is not a satire or an allegory, that these are characters. Like, I, I want you to experience the world through their eyes uh, and through their feelings and through their sensations. So that was one thing that helped. Um, I also, you know, there's not too much comedy in this book. Um, I tried to make sure that there are no characters that are just uh, comic relief. And there are, you know, a lot of stories benefit from something like that. But because I'm asking the reader to take this a little more seriously, I really couldn't spend too much time on trying to make the book funny. I think there, I like to think there are some funny moments in here and certainly the very premise of it just kind of makes you snicker a little bit like what? Uh, my dog's going to kill me. What? Um, so, you know, that, that, that's, that's an element to it, but it's not a focus. Um, and I think as well, yeah, any, anything else that would, that, that kind of plays into this. I mean, well, you know, I, I think, think I'll just leave it. Uh, oh, I think I think you're right in, in uh, about the humor. There, the characters have humor within themselves, and they're not all just completely dead serious. But the book itself is written. Uh, you take what I guess you benefit from is taking your premise and your characters within that premise utterly seriously. You say, okay, this is uh, these are the ground rules. This is the game. And I'm going to play that game very consistently, which you do throughout the series. We, you know, from the very get-go, you know, we take Mort very seriously. He's not like, it's not like Garfield. No, no. So uh, I, I think that the the absence of, you know, the, the comic relief characters or the comic relief scenes uh, really help us. And I think what you replace it with is, uh, wisely is a kind of emotionality and I'm thinking now of the beavers as a species they really like to sing and I think there are lyrics that you write for their songs and, and that insight into them as a species as remembering things by songs and singing is really interesting I mean it, it makes sense as a, a kind of cultural affect and, and I think one of the things too that just brings about my brain is that uh, you really create a truly multicultural society because it's multi-species. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That was one of the big uh, 
challenges of this of this book was was really trying to make the species uh you know first of all showing that the species have their own cultures but then of course within the species there are multiple cultures which i think is the even more difficult step to take um uh yeah i get and and you know what ends up happening in this book is that each of the cultures i'm putting together ends up being a hodgepodge of many different things I mean, one of the great ironies of of the story a deliberate irony is that these characters are proud to tell you that they are moving on from the world of the humans and yet so much of what they do is very very human and uh some of the animals notice that and they kind of shrug their shoulders uh, the other animals notice it and then say hey let's not bring this up ever again you know so that ends up being a um a point of tension for some of them um i also should say just to go back real quick to what we were talking about how to how to ground this i mean um when I first wrote this, the opening uh, chapter was uh, the chapter showing the humans getting carted off to this uh, war uh, prison, this war camp, uh, or prison camp, I should say. And everyone who read it said, you know what, you need to start it with the actual animal character. Uh, so th I changed it so that the opening chapter was about more. Um, and I think that, that helps with this thing you're talking about with when it comes to culture, because, you know, Mort being a pet, I think like that ends up influencing his some sympathy for humans, but also some resentment toward them as well. That ends up being like the root of a lot of the, the cats culture is that they, you know, in, in particular, they're, they're the, they're the species that are probably the proudest of how they've moved on, but they love human uh, luxuries. I mean, which is maybe a bit of a stereotype for cats, but I think it works. Now um, you created a really complicated universe here with a lot of interesting characters and cultures and you've told uh you know a big arc epic story i'm wondering if you're thinking about and you also have a a, a series for young adults so talk about fitting that into your world yeah um i've, I've gotten the question a few times is your uh is World with, uh, War with No Name, is it part of the same universe as Spark in the League of Versus? And I, I've occasionally jokingly said to people, oh, yes, and then watch the horror wash over their face. They're like, you mean all those children are going to get slaughtered by the animals and the wolves? Or whatever? But no, they're not part of the same universe. Although, I mean, I think the similarities are definitely there. And I should say, uh, Spark in the League of Versus is actually, it's middle grade, just to get into publishing lingo here. It's middle grade rather than young adults. So it's for like nine to 12 year olds. And um, I mean, in that one, the main character is a teddy bear. Um, I would say that the one of the things I realized was that my writing style focuses mainly on clarity. So like I didn't really have to change too much of my writing style to uh, write those books for middle grade readers. I just feel like I just write the kind of stuff that I like to think is accessible and so on. Um, and I guess I guess the connections it might have to, to the Mort universe, I think maybe the most obvious one, besides the fact that once again, you have talking animals, or in this case, they're, they're stuffed animals. Um, you know, there's another dynamic of, of an old kind of grizzled mentor and like a young, uh, you know, hotshot who, you know, wants to strike out on her own. Um, and I, I think it's sufficiently different where it's not just repeating what happened in, in this, in the War With No Name series, but I don't know, that seems to be my wheelhouse. I, I just feel like the tension and the growth that comes from that kind of relationship, 
mean, maybe I'm dealing with something from my past I haven't grappled with yet. I'm not sure. But ah. that ends up being probably the most the, the, the biggest similarity between them. Um, having created the, the more universe to with, you know, a lot, put a lot of work into that. Are you thinking of going back to revisit it or where do you think you might go next having done that? Uh, I, if I ever revisited it, I don't think it would be for a very long time. And I think it would probably be some kind of spinoff work as opposed to extending the story further. But I'm not, I'm not sure. I just don't have an idea for it just yet. And it's just, I mean, 2021 will mark 12 years since I started this series. So uh, it, it might be time for a bit of a break and uh, we'll see what happens next. I mean, you know, if there was some situation where it actually got picked up for, I guess, a TV show and HBO was like, here's a lot of money to write another book. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to come up with ideas real quick. Don't worry. I'll come up with something. Um, but yeah, for now, I'm going to set this aside. I have another science fiction book I'm working on, um, but it is in the very, very early stages. Um, and it. I mean, it, and it's weird again. I mean, it takes place on a completely different planet. Uh, it involves it involves another big global war, I guess you could say. Um, basically, a dispute over a border and people who are crossing that border. So, um, some some relevance to our to our troubled times. Um, but it will have fish people in it, though. So, anybody who enjoyed the fish people in this series, there are some different fish people in the new one. I. Maybe that's another thing I'm working through. There's some Freudian thing involving the fish people. I don't know. Well, the the sarcops, as you call them, in the War with No Name novels, they're they're among my favorite critters. I think because uh, they're the most monsterific, and I think they you make you do a good job at creating them as monsters. And so, talk a little bit about you know the difference for you between humans and monsters and animals, because you know. You have a good good bout of all three in, in these books, and, and I think it's an interest. You work well in all in all mediums. I, to my, to, one of the things as I was reading parts of this book, I'm thinking, damn, he could write, you know, a John Irving kind of thing, you know, just about people just being humans and do a damn good job at keeping you involved. Well, thank you. Um, I. I guess ultimately, like from a storyteller point of view, um, the, the the most important thing is that all the characters want something and they have to make some difficult decision and take some difficult action to get what they want. That's if they didn't have that aspect to them, then they they wouldn't be or shouldn't be a main character in this. So that is the thing that monst the, the more monstrous characters, the animal characters and the human characters all have in common. Um, but as far as just more subtle differences, I mean, the thing that I ended up focusing on a lot in this book in particular was how the characters communicated. Uh, the humans, it's all through dialogue. Uh, the wolves, who I guess are sort of both monstrous and animal in this, um, they use a combination of sign language, body language, growling, and spoken word, uh, which ends up which ended up becoming very difficult to convey sometimes because I'm, I'm, you know, I had to say things like, you know, so-and-so arched his back, stuck out his tail, uh, showed his teeth, uh, and, uh, snorted a little bit. And all of that meant, Hey, get off of my land. Or so, you know, like there were several scenes where I had to write it like that, but like, I'm hoping that the accumulative or the, the accumulated effect of that is 
that, um, you know, you get to just, just like almost smell them and, and just hear them. And you, 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 you actually, you, you feel like you're right next to them when they're showing you anger, or when they're showing you, uh, affection, you know, like that ended up being one of the main ways to kind of differentiate, differentiate the animals or, or you know, the monsters and the animals and so on. Um, and I guess in the case of the Sarcops, the big challenge with them and, and my editor and I had a long back and forth was you need to make them even weirder. You know, I would send in a, uh, a um, draft, he would send it back and he'd say, they're still not weird enough. Make them even weirder. So, uh, <laughs> man, from my own heart. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's <laughs> my editor is Mark Doten, who has written some incredibly weird fiction of his own. So he was perfect for this. And um, yeah, I mean, I think in the way they communicate, for example, they use kind of a psychic ability. Um, but of course, all a human would hear is just a series of clicks. So you know, the way they communicate ends up showing like this, just another example of their just utter weirdness and just their, how alien they are. So, all right, kind of a rambling answer, but I hope that (laughs) that, uh, helps. No, you know, now, um, I, um, wanted to, to ask too about just, uh, you wrote a lot of this, you finished this book before, COVID, the, the pandemic became, you know, a part of everyday lives. And it looks like it's going to be that way for, for a while. I'm wondering if you could talk about, you know, the influence of the real world on the, um, the worlds you create, how much of that seeps through and how much of it do you hold back behind the filter and, and how you handle that as a, as a writer and, you know, as a person too, because writing your, if you're uh, writing, you're writing something both that you want to read, but also that something you want to say to to reveal something about yourself that maybe isn't obvious in everyday conversation. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, this, the book is not a straight allegory, but obviously um, you can see some real connections. I mean, I think with the wolves in particular, I had in mind you know, people in my life or people in the news who are really, who just seem intractable and can't be, for lack of a better term, can't be reasoned with Mm -hmm. and um, end up acting in like a cult-like fashion, but they demand sympathy and empathy anyway. And uh, it, you know, I wanted to grapple with that. I wanted to have characters who have to, who have no choice but to interact with them. And, um, you know, what, what do you do? Like, when do you make the decision to fight back to them, fight back against a group like that? Or when do you make a decision to sit down and listen to them um, and to look into their, what they claim are their grievances? I mean, this is a thing that we've been dealing with a lot the last few years. Um, so it ended up, uh, I can't say it was prescient, but I mean, you know, I think that the, the stuff that we've been witnessing has been going on for a bit. Um, I have to say one of the most consistent criticisms I received of the first novel in particular, um, which came out in 2015, people just said, look, what happens in this book is that these group of these humans form this death cult. And I just don't think a death cult would form that quickly. And by the time I was editing this book, I was thinking of those criticisms and just thinking, no, you're wrong. It could, it could form pretty quickly. Uh, in the year 2020, I was thinking about that a lot. So, yeah. (laughs) So that came up, that came up quite a few times, especially with the wolves. Um, and you know, I'm thinking a lot about, um, you know, the fact that we live in a pluralistic society, but how exactly do you preserve that? Uh, like I said, I mean, you 
do you decide that you have to fight back against certain intolerant things or do you sit down and maybe at least give them some kind of hearing so that you can then dismiss them from there? Like, I don't know what the best decision is sometimes. Sometimes sitting down with an extremely intolerant person and giving them a chance to talk about it or a platform, as we might call it, might be doing more harm than good. I really don't know the answers to this, and I'm hoping that this book just sort of reminds people of how complicated that stuff can be. Yeah, should you wait for war or fight for peace? Yeah, yeah, preemptive strike. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the, the best move is in a lot of these things. Uh, yeah. Oof. Now, um, has there been any interest in this? It seems like something that you these days. I mean. Um, this seems like something that could could show up on Netflix, at, at, and the whether it's done via animation or computerized, you know, special effects. Um, either way, it seems like you know a kind of compelling piece and, and something that that might interest them. Has there been any, any interest in that? Uh, there's been some, but the, I mean, I'm in a position where you know my agent and. Um, and then the, the like sub agents that she works with, like they're out kind of putting out the word and they occasionally check in with me and say like, oh, so-and-so said it was a great idea, but it would probably be too expensive or so-and-so said it would be a great idea. But um, it, you know, like maybe we it needs more human characters. Um, so we've gotten some feedback like that and some some enthusiasm. I'm not really sure what what comes next. And this is a world that I'm so lost in. I mean, it's, it's weird because years ago I felt so lost when it came to just publishing a book. You know, I felt like the more I was studying, the less I was understanding. Um, and now I feel like I'm starting over in this, this world of trying to get a book optioned. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, there's some interest, but nothing to report just yet, but it would be cool. And I do, you know, I think about it. I mean, I, I, I try not to wrap up my entire identity in it, but it would be pretty cool. Well, <laughs> it's certainly uh, involving enough. I've been speaking with Robert Rapino. His new book is Malefactor. It's the conclusion of the war with no name a trilogy. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thanks so much for having me again. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.